One recent analysis of the predominant problems of our society opined that we are obsessed with the immediate. We want our satisfaction now. And because of that, young people are racking up enormous debts on credit cards at high interest rates, putting themselves under a burden that will be very hard for them to get out from under. In fact, we struggle with a form of tunnel vision in which our focus is actually limited to the day-to-day monotonous routines of life. In fact, the analysis goes on to say that we have lost a sense of history. We have lost the storyline that tells us that problems come and go. And so as one writer, a man by the name of Jim Winter has lamented, because of our focus on the immediate, we are just like the writer of this fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes that we're going to be looking at. And he refers to it as being caught up in a crying game. Let me give you just one example before I really get rolling. Julian Barnes is a famous English writer, uh, author of Flaubert's Parrot and other prize-winning novels. At one time, Julian Barnes identified himself as an atheist. But because of some of his personal struggles, he moved on from that claim to the realization that maybe, just maybe there was a God. And so, he uh, began to identify himself as an agnostic. Uh, Because in his opinion, he really didn't think there was any good reason to think there is a God. But, at the same time, he was facing a dilemma. And the dilemma was this. And I chose this particular picture of Julian Barnes on purpose. You see, here's the problem that he struggled with. If there is not a God, then that would imply that there is no such thing as life after death. And therefore, the book he wrote, nothing to be frightened of. But here's the problem. Julian Barnes was frightened. In fact, he was afraid to die. Desperately afraid to die. In fact, a a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis of him at one point said that he was suffering from thanatophobia, the fear of death. And it reported that Barnes thinks about death every day and admits that sometimes in the night he's awake and feels utterly alone. 
And his accounts of his dreams are even darker. Sometimes he dreamt that he was buried alive. Other times he dreamt that he was being chased and surrounded and outnumbered. And he actually referred to that as, quote, the usual stuff. And perhaps it is the usual stuff. Because death is the sum of all of our fears of being alone, of being abandoned, of being condemned. So, if I showed you a picture of him just a decade before this one, you would see a man that was vibrant with life. But that fear of death and those struggles pulled him down. So here's my question. When you wake up in the middle of the night, what are you afraid of? I mean, you should be starting to realize that Ecclesiastes faces up to our fears by asking some of the hardest questions that there are. Questions about the meaning of the universe, the existence of God, and the life to come. So it's difficult, and it is the difficulty of the question of death that Solomon keeps coming back to. He comes to it, he came to it at the end of chapter 3 that we looked at last Sunday, where our preacher teacher posed a problem and came up with an answer, only to discover that there's a problem with the answer too. And as he wrestled with different issues concerning all of the injustice in the world and about his longing for God to address the final judgment, address these issues at the final judgment, his thinking, his thinking about the great and the terrible day caused him to wonder again, what will happen when we die? You see, the very place where we most expect and most need to receive justice turned out to be a place of unfairness. He looked at the court system and said, the court system is corrupt. And for Solomon, that wasn't merely a frustration like some of the other problems that we've read about in Ecclesiastes. It was a problem that he saw as an indication, a manifestation of genuine evil. And even worse, there was nothing he could do about it. And so his frustration is not simply that injustice is done, but that it goes unpunished. And when the halls of justice become quarters of corruption, where? Can righteousness be found? And so he asked the question, are we any better than the animals? The animals with which we share the planet. And he concluded uh, the third chapter with the question, since we're no better than the animals, but all are from the dust and to dust all return, who 
Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, who will bring humanity, who will bring us as humans to see what's going to be in the days to come, in the future? And so it is that I want us to look predominantly at the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes this morning. Under the heading, the title, Where Darkness Seems to Prevail. I believe that I have heard more cynical, more pessimistic thoughts expressed than at any other time in my life during this past two years. Many of those have been words of concern as to whether or not our men and women have died in vain. That what they fought for, the freedoms for which they gave their lives, is somehow being systematically eliminated. And so I want to look today, first of all, at the prevailing darkness, and then move on to what I see in the text as a a prospect for some light. So let me figure out where I put my Bible, because I brought it in. There it is. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's a picture of darkness. Darkness brought on by the reality of oppression and tyranny. It's a darkness that has to do with exploitation. And Solomon witnessed three tragedies. Oppression and exploitation in the halls of justice. Pain and sorrow in the lives of innocent people. And a lack of concern on the part of those who could have been bringing comfort. Now some have suggested that this is a view of the legal proceedings of his day. I'm I'm not convinced of that myself. There's no real mention of the courtroom or the prosecutor. I mean, it seems to me more like just the words of a helpless bystander observing the exploitation of the weak that's going on by the powerful. Words that could be heard on almost any street today. And yet Solomon was a man in a position that he could have done something about the oppression and exploitation. I mean, it was his own kingdom. The problem, however, was that he had turned to other gods. You go to 1 Kings and read the story. Uh, If you're reading on the, the chart that I passed out on the reading the Bible together as a church... 
You've just kind of completed that section of material. Solomon turned to all kinds of things. But he abandoned the sacred trust that God had given him as the king of Israel. And because of that, He didn't have that same desire for justice and righteousness that God did. Psalm chapter 12 verse 5. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. You see, here's the problem. Wherever there is power there is the temptation for its misuse. And whenever that power becomes absolute, there is the possibility of absolute abuse of that power. And it doesn't matter if we look at the national level or the local level or sadly, even within the church. Look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 for a second. Verses 1 to 3. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but examples to the flock. Now, Peter would not have had a reason to write that if there weren't, in fact, leaders in the churches who were, in fact, domineering and doing all they could just for the monetary gain of it. And the poignant cry of Solomon as the preacher is repeated twice. They have no comforter. And this is coming from the heart of a man who is aware of his own exploitative nature. He sees no way out of it except death. I mean, notice the despairing cynicism in verses 2 and 3. He says, caught up in this web of exploitation, it's better that I hadn't even been born. I understand from history that there was a slogan during the Spanish Civil War. And that slogan declared, long live death, down with intelligence. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, King Solomon, the most intelligent of men, he could find no comfort in this world of exploitation. For him, death seemed to be a better option. But look at his second observation. His second observation revealed the desolation, the futility of earthly endeavors. Look at verses 4 to 5. Get back to Ecclesiastes. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work 
come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Ernest Lehman has written about the pursuit of earthly pleasures from the position of an economist, a, a, a guru in leadership. And he wrote a book, and the book is entitled The Sweet Smell of Success. Millions upon millions of people are laboring today for that fragrance of success in one field or another. But at what price? I mean, underlying its pursuit and gain is a trait of fallen human nature that ultimately frustrates both the successful and those around them. And that's one of Solomon's tragic findings as he delves into the meaning and purpose of life under the sun. Envy can be both the motivation for success, but it can also be the result of success. Our ambitions may appear to have Roots in altruistic soil. I mean, the appearance that we are concerned about the least of these. We want to be helping others. But they can easily be fed and watered by our own envy of others. I had a friend who was a professor at a school. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. One of the most brilliant men that I've ever known. At that time in his life, he did not have an earned doctorate. But I'm telling you what, he didn't need one. I could sit at his feet and learn every time he spoke. And I guarantee you, uh, if I said his name... I'm sure Cindy would be agreeing with me. But one thing I noticed, and I shared this with a friend, and the friend and I talked about it, and said the friend said yes, and I have a feeling he's going to leave the school because of it. Every time he heard about somebody else earning a doctoral degree, he was bothered. His ears would perk up. What's that? Who's that? People speak of healthy competition. But Solomon saw that much of this was the result of envy and nothing more than what he referred to in Proverbs chapter 14 as the rottenness to the bones. You know, the Bible gives us many instances of instability, of envy of those who gave up much because of their craving for more. For instance, Ahab had a kingdom. But what did he do? He killed a man for a vineyard. 1 Kings chapter 21. Solomon. He had many wives and concubines. His dad did, David. But what did he do? Stole another man's wife. Envy of the success of others can ruin relationships. Gore Vidal was brutally frank when he said, 
Whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Isn't that horrible to live that way? You see, achievement under the sun that does not put God first will leave you frustrated because its motivating force is envy and envy will never satisfy. And what makes it even more frustrating is found in what follows there in verse 5. The dramatic contrast to verse 4 and a springboard to what follows is when Solomon says this dropping of the hands, folding of the hands. That was a phrase, a euphemism in that day of the person who just drops out, decides to do nothing, to be a sloth, to sit around and soak up what others are willing to funnel their way. And he graphically portrays that as simply just a condition of self-cannibalism. Destroying yourself. Then, he moves on again. Verses 7 and 8. He moves on to the deception of possession and things. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Solomon now puts himself in the shoes of of a lonely person. And what is the root of that man's loneliness in in his writing? Apparently, he has no immediate family. Maybe he's an only child who lost both of his parents. The context kind of suggests that he's describing though someone who is consumed by his work. Someone who is incapable of making or keeping close relationships. Probably everyone here knows someone who has achieved things in life but who lost their family and friendships along the way. And if such a person asks the question, for whom am I toiling? The only answer that they can give reinforces a sense of loneliness. No one. The former Secretary of General Secretary of the United Nations, Dog Hammerskold, uh, a Christian man, by the way, he once wrote, What makes loneliness and anguish is not that I have no one to share my burden with, but this, I only have my own burden to share. This weekend I heard these words. I repeated, I posted them because I think others need to hear it. We do not come to church to get edified. If you come to church to get edified, you're going to lose out on a whole lot of what church is all about. Why are we to come to church building as the church? Paul says, 
so that we can edify others. It's in the giving, not in the getting. And I don't know where and when we came about this whole style of worship that I would describe as predominantly an entertainment model. But I think it's time for us to get away from it. When Paul writes about the church, he says, one person brings a song, another person brings a poem, another person brings a teaching, a prophecy, a song. What's he saying? He's saying that when we come to worship together, every single one of us should be bringing something to share with the community of believers. You see, success is meaningless when it becomes all-consuming. Think of the many politicians and business people who rise to the top of their professions only to realize that they lost their family in the process. Or a person consumed by their hobbies to the extent that family is pushed out. And for most, the question, for whom do I toil, comes too late. Which leads us to the fourth. Solomon begins to speak of the delusion of social standing. Verses 13 to 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For when he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. And yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. I mean, this is a classic rags to riches story. And there have been many attempts to identify the historical characters behind the story. Some have suggested that he was talking about Joseph and Pharaoh. Others that he was talking about Saul and David. Some, Astyages and Cyrus. And many others. The story, however, simply testifies to a principle. A principle that has been duplicated a million times in human history. Success, advancement, power, popularity, all of those things are fleeting. Those who look for permanent status are going to be disillusioned. And so in the story, the old leader who once rose to prominence but now has become out of touch, passed his cell out of date, supplanted by a younger, more dynamic, a modern person who captures the imagination of the people, but who in turn will also go the way of the older leader and be supplanted by another. I mean, we see it every day, don't we? The tabloids. They build up someone into superstar status. But then six months later, what do they do? 
They crash them down with a scandal either real or imaginary. I might be the only one, I hope not. But do you by chance remember Shakespeare's comment when he says, Uneasy lies the head that bears the crown. How sad, but how true that is. So so my question is, where do we find light in all this darkness? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? And I, I think there is. Let me leave you with two possible places to look. And they're right here in this fourth chapter. The first is found in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and of striving after wind. Better just one handful if it's quietness, contentment, than two handfuls if it's nothing but toil. Solomon throws in what should be a balancing factor for all of us. Here is the middle between the excessive acquisitions and indolence, but because of the power of envy, that balance is virtually impossible to achieve. Don't you find it true that because of our fallen nature, we always seem to crave just a little more? I found this interesting. This was new to me. As I was doing my research and reading, preparing for today, I found out that the ancient scientist by the name of Pythagoras, that Pythagoras invented an ingenious cup that you could fill up to a line about an inch below the brim. But any attempt to add more water than that would result in all of it going out of a hole in the bottom. I'm, I'm going to look that up and find that cup. Because how interesting and how many people would be willing to stop at that line if there's another inch in the cup that they could put something into. Rockefeller, prime example. At the point when he was either the richest or certainly one of the richest men in the world, someone asked him, at what point did you become satisfied with what you have? You know what his answer was? I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. You see, we need to learn to be content. That's what Paul wrote to the Christians at Philippi when he said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have an opportunity to show it. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote Philippians? He was in prison. Do you know what prisons were in the first century? A hole in the ground with bars over the top opening. And the food, whatever food they may or may not be given, usually only by friends, was dropped down into them. 
I've learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And this is where that verse is that has so often been taken out of context and shame on us for doing it. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now I'm going to tell you right now, that verse has nothing to do with a 95-pound weakling laying on his back on a bench press with 300 pounds on the bar and guys standing around saying, the Bible says you can do all things through Him who gives you strength. Come on, come on. No, that verse has to do with learning how to live with the circumstances in which we have been placed. Learning how to be content. And I think that's one of the lights that's at the end of the tunnel that would have and probably and possibly did help Solomon. But there's one more light. I don't think we can look past the light that shines forth from companionship. I didn't read these verses as we were reading through the chapter. You might have noticed that. Verses 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Did you notice how Solomon highlights the effect of all this loneliness by contrasting them with the joys of togetherness? In many cases, two people can enjoy more than double success for their labors. There are some instances where a person cannot work alone. There is that need for another pair of hands. Uh, We learned that one time when I was working in a factory. We had a job that we were to pick up a piece of foil, put it on a little wet ones. Remember wet ones in those white tubes? I worked at Leonard Fink factory in Lincoln, Illinois, and we put that foil on top of those before the caps got put on. And you were to take one of those containers, put the aluminum foil on, and then pick up the iron and put the iron on top of it. The person next to me and I learned that if he would take the foil and carefully set them on as they came down, I could take the iron and zap them and we could keep up with the assembly line a lot easier instead of both of us trying to do both of those tasks with every other one. There's an ancient Jewish proverb that says a friendless man is like the left hand bereft of the right. Success is something to be shared. At moments of triumph, we instinctively turn to another in the shared moment. As two are better than one in triumph, then this holds 
for good times, also times of tragedy and difficulty. And that's why Paul instructs us, bear one another's burdens. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. George Eliot, the writer, described a best friend as someone who is a wellspring in the wilderness. And Solomon goes on to speak of the warmth of human relationships. I think he has in his mind the picture of travelers who are traveling alone out in the cold and they learn that why if they would just back up to one another, they could stay warm a lot easier. In fact, his picture is based on what is very practical. And it obviously and is often used as a reference in marriages. And the mention of the threefold cord, that should remind us of the strength of fellowship. Have you ever done that? Have you ever given somebody a... a, I can tell you one way that's easy to do. You know those plastic things they used to put on... Coke cans uh, to hold six of them together. I think they still have them on some of the bottle packs. Might even have them on cans. I don't know. Take one of those and pull it apart. You can do it. Almost anybody can pull them apart. Fold it so that they're double and try to pull it apart. Or better yet, after you've folded it, fold it again and make it three thick. And very few people that I know can still pull it apart. I often listen these days to music that many of you would probably consider outside of my norm, and and they are actually songs outside of my norm. But when we travel in the car, I often give my daughter permission to put her music on the radio. And there was a song a little while back that the lyrics struck me. And I asked her about the song and she explained it a little bit to me. The lyrics simply said this, What if you had it all, but nobody to call? The lyrics actually come from a song in which Justin Bieber uh, shows the dark side of his childhood stardom. Because of all of that wealth that he came uh, in to acquire, he struggled with alcohol and drugs. And I understand that Uh, Correct me, I think now he is singing Christian songs and he's become a Christian. You see, he doesn't lionize fame. Instead, the song paints a much more realistic image of what it means to be in the world as a famous teenager, but lonely. That's the title of the song. Lonely. And you might be there. You might be there this morning. Lonely. Thinking that nothing prevails except darkness. 
But I want you to know that there is light. There is light. This week, as Jesse and I, as we were out walking, we listened to a Christian radio station uh, that streams their music, K-Love. And the two morning people have a question for the day almost every day where you can call in and you can say what you think about what was said. The question the question was does church help you to feel any closer to God? Jesse can tell you I almost tripped and fell. This building is not the church. You understand that, I hope. We are the church. And as the church, how does the Bible describe us? We are two images that are used over and over. As a church, we are the body of Christ. You want chapter and verse? I can give you a minute. As the church, we are the bride of Christ. So, I grabbed my phone and I dialed. 800, 900, 1300. Bam, 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 bam. 800, 900, 1300. Bam, bam. 800, 900, 1300. Hello, you have reached Kate Love's recorded line saying that all of our people are busy. You can get to us online, blah, blah, blah. I never did get through. But I wanted to get through and say that's not even an appropriate question. There is no such thing as a Christian without the church. Period. End of sentence. Do you think for a minute that you and I could be close if you didn't want to have anything to do with my bride? And the church is here for multiple reasons, but especially so that you and I, as broken vessels, can lean upon each other and gain strength from one another as we edify each other and build each other up. Let's pray. Father God, there is a darkness that seems to prevail. But help us as the church to communicate to our family, to our friends, that the light 
that is shining on meaninglessness is a light of contentment and a light of companionship that are found in fellowship with you by means of your Son and His Bride, the Church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.